Production support comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, phone, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Salzberg, editor of the Herald Times, along with co-host Mary Catherine Carmichael. And today we're going to talk about Indiana's new gun-related laws. We have uh, one guest in the studio with us today, and that's a returning guest, Monroe County Sheriff James Kennedy. Thanks for being here, Jim. Glad to have you, as usual. Uh, we're being joined on the phone by two guests. Um, Right now, and then we're going to have a, a third guest on the phone in the second half of the program. But right now, we have Brent Weil, a gun rights ad- activist and attorney um, who is the uh, the 17-year chairman of the Friends of NRA Southwest Indiana Committee and also Indiana State Senator Jim Toms from District 49, uh, who was the author of some of the firearms um, proposals that made it through uh, the state house this year. If you have questions or comments, please phone us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348. WFIU.org slash noon edition is our web address. If you want to send us an email question or send us a question by going to the website or just a comment, join the join the conversation. Um, let's go first to Senator Toms because you were in the middle of the uh, the new legislation, and if you could just explain what what the new laws are that are going to be taking effect. I I believe they take effect on July 1st, correct? That's correct. Okay. All right. Well, um, the two bills that I authored and uh, got passed was uh, Senate Bill 506. I guess we can start with that one. Uh That was a a measure that uh, will allow and provide for citizens in Indiana that does not have a handgun license to transport a handgun to uh, designated areas such as uh, shooting ranges, uh, instructional classes, uh, to a gun show, to um, certain points that uh, they can take these firearms. And uh, and the way the bill was written, uh, the handgun would have to be unloaded and secured and inaccessible to the driver. And this came about because we had an incident uh, that was brought to my attention last November where I think it was up at Atterbury, but uh, it's one of the public ranges up there, uh, individuals uh, just exercising their constitutional right and joined the day of uh, firearms, uh, uh, plinking and shooting, target shooting. And as I understand it, the DNR came in and um, had everybody put their guns down, and they uh, wanted to inspect those shooters that, to see if they had a license. A lot of folks didn't. And, and uh, I think it's probably common here in the state of Indiana, a lot of people don't realize that uh, to be in possession of a handgun, you had to have a handgun license or a, a hunting shooting target permit. So these individuals that didn't have a license, they were cited. I think their guns were confiscated. And um, I believe ultimately uh, their, the, their, their guns were returned to them and the citations was, was dropped. But it did point out uh, that we had a flaw in the way Indiana treated individuals here in the state that do enjoy firearms, and maybe people they don't particularly want to have a handgun license. Maybe they don't want to apply for the license, but they do like to take their uh, their handguns to say uh, Grandpa's farm on a weekend, family outing, for a day of shooting. And we're not aware that they were in violation of state law by having those handguns transported them and not have a license. So that was the uh, that was the purpose in this measure and. Okay. Uh, straightforward. Senator, what's the big deal with getting a license? Why why not just require everybody to do the same thing and if you're even if you're going to have a handgun, you just need to have a license. Well, actually the question should be why have a license because we have a constitutional right that doesn't require us to have a license. But nevertheless, we're at a point in history right now that uh, society feels that uh, folks who exercise their constitutional right is required to have some kind of a state issued permit. Mhm. Um, can I the purpose that, in answer to your question is like I said there are some people that don't want to have a um, license they don't uh, tend to apply for one let's say for example a widow for example her husband dies she's got these handguns she wants to maybe sell them get rid of them even her could not take those guns to a gun show or to a, a dealer without being in violation of state law can you see that uh, how that can we can wind up with these kind of measures how we can trap uh, good people um, so this this here uh, this bill, which will become law in a few weeks, was um, 
I think, necessary. All right. What about uh, Act 292? Well, that, too, was uh, something that was long overdue. And the purpose on Senate Bill 292, which was a major piece of legislation, I've got to be honest with you, I didn't realize that I was taking on such a a huge endeavor until I got into this thing. But what we've had uh, over the past decades is um, different counties, uh, different uh, political subdivisions, city councils, county councils, mayors, chiefs of police, over the years have adopted their own ordinances and rules and regulations on guns. Now, we have in Indiana a pretty comprehensive uh, statute on gun laws. And coupled with federal laws, I think it's about as complete as you could want. But when you have these different uh, administrations that can come and go with elections, and as they come through, they add on to their own particular ordinances and rules, what we're setting up here is a spider web of laws and regulations that no one in the state of Indiana could keep up with. I mean, no one in, for example, South Bend could possibly know what ordinances or rules Evansville's developed, or somebody from Jasper, Indiana, could know what Fort Wayne has. Mm -hmm. And so when a person has applied for their handgun license that's issued to them by the state, they went through the process of getting their um, license, fingerprinting, paid the fees, went through all the paperwork and documentation, and they're issued that license, they're going to assume that they're good to go. But when they travel, they may be in violations. For example, Evansville, and I can almost bet you that most people here in, in this city right here is unaware that there's a law on, on the books in, Indi- in Evansville that prohibits a, a gun or a dog in a cemetery. Now, you may ask, uh, what's the significance? Uh, if a person would say uh, traveling in Evansville, maybe they're, doing a back, uh, maybe they're doing research on family history, they're in a cemetery. If by chance they would be caught with their handgun and a license to carry that, they could be in violation of an ordinance. Crawford Zoo in Indiana, in a state of emergency, the mayor could uh, declare that anyone under the age of 16 could not have a toy gun. There are things that has been passed in the ordinances that just are outside the realm of what state law is. And so I felt that it's time that we reel this in, and uh, we're all going to operate under the uniformity of state law. Now, let's ask uh, Sheriff Jim Kennedy to respond to these laws, because you have some issues with them. Correct? Well, the uh, w- the one law that I'm really a little bit concerned about is its clarity of content, and that's uh, Senate Enrolled Act 506, which amends uh, the Indiana Code, uh, Senator, it's 3547-2-1, of which you are an author, and I realize that doesn't mean you're the draftsman. Uh, and you've indicated this uh, is limited to only to going to and from ranges and things like that? Designated, and it specifies in the bill. Uh, well, unfortunately, I just uh, I have just a synopsis, and it makes it really unclear to me uh, exactly what, you know, the content of it, so perhaps we can't really argue about it. But uh, would you agree with me that many of the state laws that we have are not enacted to enhance carrying a gun or deter carrying a gun, but really to raise money on, for the state? Well, I guess, um, you know, as a freshman senator, um, you know, most all the bills that are presented, there's a fiscal analysis, and I suppose that uh, all of the measures, whether it's a gun measure or something with utilities or or natural resources all have some sort of uh, uh, research to see what it would generate in a, in a form of revenue and what it would cost the state to enact it. But, um, you know, when you read our state laws on firearms, um, some of those measures um, is a little bit, you, you kind of have to question is what, uh, what was the intent on this. But, you know, I, I don't, and mm-hmm. you're, in answer to your question, I'm sure that money is a factor on some of this. Yeah, that's what I always kind of wondered about with a gun license. I, I thought as much as anything it was a source of, of revenue. And, you know, beyond that, I don't know. What, how do you see it? What I'd like to see with some of these laws, frankly, uh, from my perspective in law enforcement, is that before you get a license, when whether or not you agree you should have one or not, I think it's beyond the point at this time, uh, that there should be some required training, such as how to safely fire it, how to safely carry it, how to safely disassemble and assemble it, 
uh, some minimal things like that and make me a lot more comfortable. And I will have to say this, though, that it's very rare in law enforcement that we have a person who has committed a serious offense with a weapon who is permitted to carry that weapon. Usually they are not uh, for what that's worth. Mm -hmm. Let's go to the phones. We have a couple of callers who want to talk to us. Let's go to Valerie first. Valerie? Hello, Valerie? Uh, yeah, Valerie, go ahead. Can you not hear me? We can yeah, now. Yeah, please go ahead. You can hear now? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think this law is crazy. <laughs> I'm sitting on the local library board, and we have had to change our requirements for what is allowed and not allowed in a library. Because July 1st, you can now bring a handgun into a library, licensed or not. You, this is not a matter of transporting a weapon to a firing range. It is allowing opening up a can of worms for where people can carry firearms. And I have great concern about this. If the intent was transporting to a firearms facility, that's how it should have been written. Senator, do you want to? Was this the, that wasn't part of Senate Bill five hundred six? Was it, or was it? No. Yeah. Right. No, what? it's not. Uh, and Mary, um, no. This uh, this is she talking about Senate Bill two ninety two? Yeah. Right. That's val- this correct, is Valerie. Mm-hmm. I want to correct something that was said here. Um, it does not allow people without a license to carry handguns. Um, the statement made that uh, people can carry a handgun in the libraries with or without a license. No, that's not true. This only applies to people who have a handgun license. That's what this bill was, uh, it was uh, confined to, is those with a license. My question, I've had people from the libraries uh, ask me about this, and I've, my, my question to them is, right now, and what have they been doing over the past years? Have they been screening people as they come into the libraries? Most of the answers I've gotten, and actually every answer I've gotten is no, we have not. Um, so at this point, and, and uh, I've asked them, do you have uh, notices up that uh, you can't bring a handgun in these? They've not had that either. So this is the hysteric that has happened when we talk about firearms and guns. To this point, to my knowledge, the libraries that I know in our area have never screened, have never uh, had security guards, and never had notices of prohibiting people from coming in there with their handguns. And these are people with a license that have a concealed handgun, an expensive item, by the way, they're not going to flash that gun. My question that the, to the listeners out here, tell me what is the harm in a mother, for example, who has applied for a license, and she's got her two children in the car. She wants to take them to the park. She wants to take them to the library. They go in there. They check out their books, and they leave. They don't want to be a victim as they're out in the parking lot. This mother with her two children does not want to be a victim when they're in the parking lot or if they're on the road going to the library from home and her car breaks down. And, and a van pulls up, four big thugs come out of that van. They don't want to be a, a, a victim. And my question to society is, why would you want them to be? And, Jim, if I could interject here very simply, uh, the, the point here is what, you know, Indiana's made a value judgment, as have 48 other states, that we're going to issue concealed weapons permits to law-abiding citizens. What is it that seems to make people believe just because a law-abiding citizen has a firearm in their purse or on their person, they're posing a danger to people. You know, you encounter people who carry concealed weapons every day at Walmart, at the grocery store, at the service station. They're not posing a threat to anyone. And we know from Indiana's experience issuing gun permits on a shall-issue basis for the past 40 or 50 years that the fact that we have over 300,000 licensed, concealed citizens carrying guns in Indiana does not lead to gunfights in the street. It does not lead to... The, the fear-mongering anti-gun groups have posed is going to occur if you have people carrying concealed weapons. Let, let, me, let me interject uh, our phone numbers, 855 877 if you want to join this discussion about gun-related laws. Um, that was Brent Weil, who's a gun rights activist and an attorney, um, and he is also we also have Jim Toms, the state senator, who was an author of a couple of gun control gun gun laws, not gun control laws, but uh, gun legislation that has pa- have passed. Um, and S- Sheriff Jim Kennedy is here, and he has he I think he has a, an opposing view that he wants to offer at this point. Well, it's not necessarily opposing. I would just say, from a law enforcement uh, law enforcement perspective, no, we don't have gunfights in the street. 
as Mr. Weil has correctly indicated, we do have the call, man with a gun in a bar. We have those calls, and those are specifically, uh, those are, uh, from a law law enforcement perspective, uh, we have to approach those with tremendous caution. Uh, We have people who are properly permitted to carry a weapon who never cause a problem. We have some that do. And generally, that's when alcohol is mixed with the firearm, and uh, that does cause a problem. Uh, Senator Toms, I, I think that one of the things that Valerie was talking about, and I think this is one of the overriding issues about um, about the uh, the new law, is is state control versus local control. I, I think that she, as a member of the library board, uh, it would be concerned that the local library board no longer has control about what can be brought into the library. I know the county commissioners in Monroe County just this morning um, passed an ordinance that basically says that uh, th- at least three of their county buildings are places where a courtroom uh, could be, even though there's really one building that has courtrooms uh, on a regular basis, but two other buildings have um, have the ability to have courtrooms, so they passed an ordinance declaring them buildings with courtrooms so that um, basically now uh, handguns cannot be carried into those buildings. Um, it's just, a, again, a matter of local control versus state control. So how, how do you react to, to that concern? Well, first off, now, they might want to be cautious about this. Uh, the, the bill clearly states that uh, buildings that contain a courthouse the word contain, not uh, – I've had some, uh, some of the areas across the state that's wanting to claim that their courthouse might be connected by a tunnel or uh, overpasses and things like that. that. That's not what the bill says. And, uh, and trying to make a determination that like we're going to take a, a closet space and call that a courtroom and we'll hold court there once a year and we're going to call it a courtroom. might be careful about that. I talked to LA, uh, LSA about this yesterday. Uh, I just would in- encourage all of the – locals across the state to be very careful about trying to circumvent this law and try and prohibit people from carrying their farms of those with a license that they might want to read too about the treble damage clause in that bill mm-hmm. but um, we're not trying to take power away from the locals but it was the locals who was taking it was taking on authority they didn't have and so again i want i want this i want this message to be clear for all of your listeners out here that we're dealing with legitimate citizens, law-abiding citizens, uh, the citizens who does not, as, as the sheriff pointed out, does not cause problems, um, the people that issue these licenses. I've got statistics nationwide down to the state level of uh, incidents where a capital crime has been committed by a person with a handgun license. In Indiana, the number was zero. So let's keep in mind we're talking about legitimate people here. We're talking about husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, that acquire a handgun license for the intent to protect themselves. They don't want to be a victim, and I don't want a local political subdivision setting up the uh, atmosphere for them to be a victim. And also we've got to keep in mind, too, that the citizen out here, the armed citizen, as I said during testimony, is your first responder. In incidents where something breaks out, it's your fellow citizen who is armed that is normally the first responder. They're not a 911 phone call away. So let's, let's, just, let's just stay focused on what this bill actually does. And uh, we don't want to get off on um, as what happened during testimony where the scenarios was presented to me. Uh, it was far-reaching scenarios. This is not, uh, not a major step. It's simply saying that we're going to recognize we have a constitutional right, and we're not going to put people who want to exercise that right in jeopardy by writing these, um, these laws that uh, will not have any effect on crime, but it, it certainly will have an effect on putting a, a reasonable, legitimate, as by state definition, proper citizen, and at the very least, an embarrassing situation. All right. We have a phone call from Guy. Guy? Hi. Hey, Guy. Here, this is a little tangential, but I've wondered to ask somebody like, like the, the gentleman from the NRA, I don't get why anybody ever carries a concealed weapon. I don't care if somebody has a gun. I want to know they have a gun. That's what scares me is that somebody wants to hide their gun. Why don't we have it? You can carry a gun, but you can't keep it secret. If I carry a gun, I want the guy who's going to rob me to know, don't rob the guy with a gun. 
you know, I, I just don't see why anybody wants to keep their arms secret. It's, I like your style, guy. Uh, <laughs> all right, uh, Mr. Weil. Uh, there's two fields of thought on this issue. In, in many states, uh, for example, California and Oregon, they actually allow open carry under their state law as long as the weapon's unloaded, I think. And a lot of uh, gun and, and out in those states, it's very difficult to get a concealed weapons permit because they have a lot of hoops to jump through. So a lot of individuals then do exercise their right to carry their weapon openly in a holster, and they've been targeted by police agencies who don't like that open display. And a number of law enforcement agencies out in those states have told and, and announced that if we see a citizen openly carrying a handgun, we will treat him as a felon put them on the ground, spread them out, and check everything and as a way of trying to dissuade these people from doing open carry. Open carry came about in, in the early part of this past century uh, as a, a way of, of making it more acceptable for people to carry firearms and not making them targets. Uh, you know, obviously, if a person sees you're carrying a firearm and they intend to do something criminal, you're the first person they're going to try to take out because you're the, you're the threat to them, basically. And so through the years, the concealed weapons clause have been adopted to allow law-abiding citizens who are proper people to carry the handguns and carry them in a way which is not socially disruptive or, in other words, uh, intimidate people or threaten people. And I'm sure Sheriff Kennedy, as you said, when, when people see a gun sticking out of someone's shirt or sticking out of their coat, sometimes they do get disturbed by that. They think the person might be a criminal, and they call the police to have them checked out. And so it's just a way of making it more socially acceptable and less disruptive to uh, carry concealed. Uh, Mr. Sheriff? Well, I don't know that carrying a gun openly is going to be less disruptive. I'm sure we'll still get the same number of calls that a person is carrying a gun in a municipal area or an urban area or a non-hunting situation. It's a handgun, for instance, not a long-barreled weapon. And by the way, there are no laws restricting that in this state. But so wait a minute. You can walk down the street with your shotgun. That's correct. And Put it loaded across your shoulder, and no one can say anything about it. That's correct. Mm-hmm. Uh, in your car. And again, uh, carrying a holstered handgun in this, in most any community, and I've worked at the federal, state, and local level, will still, I would suspect, precipitate a call to a law enforcement agency, and we would have to respond. And we would respond not by putting a person on the ground, et cetera, but by asking to see their permit to carry. All right. Uh, guys, that uh, clear it up for you? Well, <laughs> I would rather see the gun my, my peer person, man on the street has. I feel safer knowing who has a gun than not knowing it. But I appreciate the, the, the response. All right. Thanks a lot, guys. Thank you. 855-0811, 877-285-9348, WFIU.org, slash Noon Edition. Uh, we're going to go to one more call before we take our break, so let's go to Stan. Hi, Hi Stan. Uh, I, uh, I can understand, uh, because friends of mine grew up on farms and in small communities, that carrying and, and learning to use weapons early in your life is natural. What bothers me is that the advertisements for handguns and rifles that I've been seeing in the last couple of years all seem to stress military-type applications. Uh, safety and so on. The people who can buy a 12-shot magazine automatic 9mm aren't required to train. They aren't required to understand what um, would be their role in seeing the possibility of a crime occurring. And uh, it, it seems to me this kind of assertion of freedom belongs in the 19th century, not in a, in a city situation. Anybody have a reaction? Go ahead, Jim. I would like to respond to that. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, first off, uh, this, is, this is kind of uh, alarming when we, when we see society that would be willing to sacrifice away our, our Second Amendment right. Uh, we've, we've seen the Fourth Amendment recently come under attack. I know the media doesn't seem to be too alert about it, unless it's the First Amendment, right? What we had several years ago when the judges wanted to rule that reporters had to release their sources of information. I'm very protective of our Constitution. I swore an oath to it. And 
it doesn't matter what type of firearm it is. This is something we got to remember, too. All of these things work the same. It's, it's a tube. It goes bang, and something go, a projectile goes out the end of the barrel. That's it. It doesn't matter whether it's a 9-shot or a 12-shot. Um, oh, it does, because no. the police aren't armed with the kind of, of weaponry that many criminals can buy or any common citizen can buy. It does matter. Well, I have to disagree with you, sir, because uh, it makes no difference. I tell you this, that if any one of us were to wake up at 3 in the morning with a figure standing over our bed and pointing a gun at us, we're not going to question whether it's a 10-shot or a 3-shot or a 2-shot. It's not going to matter. It's going to matter on the street with a 12-shot. Um, it, it, it doesn't, because we're talking about legitimate people here that, that don't do this, a, a legitimate citizen that I'm talking about. And this is what happens. We, we try to paint everybody with the same brush. Uh, gun owners, the people who spend high dollars for expensive firearms, don't go out and hold up 7-Eleven stores for a six-pack of beer. They don't commit those kind of crimes, and um, they don't have an effect on society as far as criminal activity. And I'm, I don't see any reason that we want to restrict certain types of firearms, because once that starts, it doesn't end either. And, uh, and getting back to uh, the comment uh, the sheriff made about uh, instruction or learning to uh, use a firearm, I, I'm the first to say that I think uh, it's nice for an individual who is, is going to buy a firearm to learn how to use that tool. Uh, however, I don't want to see us adopt any kind of a law that would require that as a citizen before they could own a firearm, and i tell you why. Because once we start that, there will be a fee attached to it. And the fee will generally increase as time goes on. And it ultimately will become so cost-restrictive that um, your average citizen out here probably could not afford to buy a firearm or to own one because of the licensing, or I should say the um, uh, requirement to, um, to learn to use that firearm. That's that what you do with automobiles. Yeah, Senator, that's what I was going to ask. I mean, would you... Do you think we should do away with the laws that say that in order to get a driver's license, you have to pass a test? No, I'm not going to. I don't want to mix uh, driving a car, which is a, uh, a privilege, with uh, a constitutional right. Uh, if we're going to suggest that you have to have that kind of uh, uh, instructions for a constitutional right, then maybe we have to instruct uh, media before they can uh, pr uh, report the news on, on, uh, on the way they perform their duties in reporting the news. We're, let's keep in mind we're talking about a constitutional right here, and the Founding Fathers uh, did not consider this lightly when they implemented that Second Amendment into those Bill of Rights. So that's a sacred document that this country has like no other nation in the, on the planet has. And uh, we, we must all be very careful that we do not relinquish this because in today's society we would never get it back. Just look at the look at the struggles it was just to try to reinforce our constitutional right here with these two bills I introduced. That the monumental struggles that I went through on getting those two bills passed, and that was just a reinforcement of our constitutional right. There are all kind of agencies and elements of society that are always looking at ways to chip away that right and that ability for people to arm themselves. All right, thanks. For, I appreciate that. Appreciate your point of view. And we're going to have to take a short break now. We'll be back, though, with uh, Senator Toms and with Brent Weil, uh, with Sheriff James Kennedy. And also we'll be joined uh, I, by Reverend Charles Ellis from Indianapolis right after the break. You're listening to Noon Edition. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville. Information at smithville.net. You can take WFIU programs with you by downloading our podcast directly to your computer, iPod, or portable player. Programs like Noon Edition, Ask the Mayor, and Harmonia, or short features like Kinsey Confidential, The Ether Game, Musical Mini Quiz, as well as Play and Opera Reviews are all available on demand. Find out more at WFIU.org. And have you heard WFIU's news features? On Fridays, the WFIU News Team brings you expanded and in-depth reports on topics affecting South Central Indiana. Listen at 11.33 a.m., 11.55 a.m., and 5.45 p.m. to catch that day's feature. They're also archived on our website, WFIU.org.
Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg from the Herald Times, along with Mary Catherine Carmichael. Today we're talking about Indiana's new gun laws, which will uh, go into effect. They're gun-related laws, which will go into effect uh, on July 1st. We're being joined on the phone by uh, Senator Jim Toms, who co-authored two bills that made it through the legislature. Senator, I'm sorry to interrupt you, Bob, but we were wondering, where is it? Where's your uh, district? Where are you from? It's District 49. It's a southwestern part of the state. It's uh, Posey County, Vandenberg, and Gibson. Oh, great. Thank you. Mm-hmm. All right. Brent Weil is with us. He's a gun rights activist and a, an attorney. He's also a 17-year chairman of the Friends of the NRA Southwest Indiana Committee. And Monroe County Sheriff Jim Kennedy, James Kennedy, says here on my sheet. But uh, I've always called him Jim. I'm, <laughs> I've known him for years. <clears throat> is with us here in the studio. Uh, the Reverend Charles Ellis, we believed, was going to be able, would be able to join us, but apparently he will not be able to join us on the program. If you want to join, if you want to join us, though, please call us eight five five zero eight one one and toll free eight seven seven two eight five nine three four eight wfiu dot org slash noon edition is uh, our web address. If you want to join that. So uh, I want to get back uh, again, Senator Toms, to the um, the issue of of local control and you know state versus local, and and ask you, uh, and this is really for my own clarification about you know federal gun um, laws if, and, and state gun laws. Are there differences there? How, how does this, how do the state and the federal governments um, match up? Well, um, you know, I uh, researched uh, both federal and state laws in, in uh, working on these two gun bills that I authored. They are identical in, in a lot of respects, and, and the language and the uh, intent is pretty much the same. Um, there's a little bit of variation, but uh, at the state level, um, the, uh, it, it's, uh, our state laws, like I said, as I researched them, were pretty explicit. And they were uh, uniform. And I think that uh, what the legislature has done over the years in um, protecting uh, gun rights has been a, 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 an admirable job. And the, on the local issues, I know the locals uh, kind of, okay, we, we've taken some of the power away from them. That's not the case. We're just saying that uh, you, can, you have to understand, you've got to be able to agree with me on this, that if, if we allowed every little local community to write its own gun laws. Can you imagine the, the atmosphere that it would pose for those people who acquire that license from the state, assuming that they are legitimate to go anywhere they want? What if we were to have done this with our driver's license? You want to, I don't like comparing driving to guns. A lot of people use that. But let's just say, that, for example, that uh, a community in the state of Indiana says, well, yeah, you have a state-issued driving license, and that's all well and good. But in our community, you have to have a certain endorsement to be legal in our community. Now, how well would that fly with the general public? Well, you know, Senator, I guess I had to, and, and uh, Sheriff Kennedy, if you'd maybe weigh in on this, but it seems to me that, you know, that doesn't give the local law enforcement any credit for any being able to use any discretion and understand that if somebody's just, you know, passing through that, of course, they're not going to uh, necessarily... Um, uh, you know, live up to the to the law in that area, um, Sheriff. Do you, what happens in a situation like that? Well, uh, first of all, they have to be brought to our attention for some other action. We wouldn't know if they were carrying a gun or not unless it was carried openly in contravention of the current law in this state. Unless they had a permit, and unless it was a permit that we recognize from another state, which is just about every one in the United States. Uh, some states don't even issue licenses, as has been uh, said before. But we act on probable cause. We act upon uh, a, a reason to be doing something. And generally speaking, the senator is right in one respect. A lot of citizens who carry guns do not cause problems. Our problem becomes those citizens who carry guns and do cause problems. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, we have been joined by Charles Ellis by phone, and Charles Ellis is um, with he's the executive director of the Indian, Indianapolis Ten Point Coalition, a faith-based anti-violence group. And today's topic, um, Reverend Ellis, is uh, the, are the new gun laws in Indiana, and I wanted to get your take on uh, some of the new gun laws, which which basically will, uh, I think, Senator Toms would say just. 
reinforce uh, the um, the uh, constitutionally given right to to bear keep arms. and bear arms. Um, what's your take on the new laws? Well, uh, first of all, uh, thanks for having me. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I would say, you know, I, I think whenever we, we, we talk about gun laws, I think, um, you know, everybody's mindful of our, our constitutional right to bear arms. But I think we have to understand the context that we live in. Uh, and, and, and the reality is the context that we live in and what we have on the streets. We have uh, illegal guns, so many illegal guns, so many uh, kids carrying guns uh, that are underage, that are 13, 14, 15-year-olds uh, that are carrying guns. That The gun issue is a, is a problem, and I don't think that we can stick our head in the sand uh, about it, or and I don't think the the answer is any kind of a law or legislation that, we took that that makes it easier. And I know I've heard many arguments for people to just simply carry a gun without without having proper uh, uh, licensing. I think I don't think our licensing needs to to relax. I think it we need to have more because we need to be able to track those guns. And I know people are are uh, get get upset about you know someone trying to take away their arms, and that's not that's not the issue. The issue is we have kids dying in the streets because it is it is too easy to get a gun, quite frankly. And I understand there's an underground market, but, but we, I don't think the direction that we ought to be uh, moving is to make it uh, easier for people or, or to have less legislation about them carrying guns. I don't think that's the right way to go. Mm-hmm. Reverend, in your, uh, you know, in, in your reality, in your day-to-day life, I mean, do you have ideas for things that could be done that might, um, might help the, the, to reduce the violence uh, through some kind of gun legislation? Well, you know, I mean, I, I, I do agree that overall, you know, what the issue the issue of gun is an animate object, and, and, and so people carry guns and they, they use them e- e- illegally. And so um, I don't know if, if, if you know, there, there are several things that need to be done that, that with the hearts and the minds of the people. But I do think that we have to be, you know, accountable. And I know I heard someone speaking saying we shouldn't make comparisons about guns and, and, uh, and driver's license. Or, but, I, but I think that there are some applicable uh, uh, parallels to guns, and let's say a uh, car, you know, every car has a VIN number, and you can trace that car from the time that it came out on its, uh, uh, that it was manufactured to wherever it is, and you can look it up, and I, I just think we have to have a way to keep up with, to, to, to keep up with, it. and I don't think that's going to solve a problem within itself, but I think we need to make it more difficult. Because we have so many, listen, in the neighborhood that I serve as a pastor, as well as I work as executive director of Ten Point Coalition, it is said that you can rent a gun, which is beyond me. I mean, you can rent a gun. It's so plentiful. Uh, the market is so plentiful. You, it, it is not hard to get a gun. It's not hard to get a gun if you're underage. And, and I think we have a responsibility to, to set those barriers and those hoops in a way to make it difficult. The law-abiding citizen, and I've heard this argument from the other direction, but no, the law-abiding citizen that's going to that's possess a firearm, I think they're going to be the ones that go through the legal processes. And you may say that the, 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 the person that, that is, that's, that's, that's against it isn't going to, and uh, he's going to have an illegal gun. Well, maybe that's true, but somebody somewhere is getting guns legally that is flooding the market Illegally, but we have to do our best to stop that. Um, Senator Tom's. Just a little bit. Oh yeah, sure. Um, Reverend Ellis, I I appreciate your comments. And the thing of it is that um, first, I want to clarify a few things. First of all, firearms are serialized; they do have a serial number, and those firearms are purchased legally. Uh, If a person breaks in, steals a gun, or however they want to get it and use it in crime, that you just can't control that. You can have so many laws, but there's a point. Here's what happens in society. We have, an, we have something that happens. Somebody does something that's horrible, and so we want a new law that's going to apply to everybody, not to the person that, made, that committed the crime, but it's the same, it's the same kind of a, um, policy that I've seen take place in schools when I was in school. You have one disruptive student. A teacher gets mad and punishes his entire class. That makes no sense that we do that, and that's what we're doing with gun laws. We, every time somebody violates a law, or, or does something that would you might think we need another new law for, 
the law is going to apply to everybody. And that's why I say enough is enough. Let's quit putting the monkey on the back of the good people out here that are always trying to uh, perform in a, in, a, in a safe manner or a, a respectable Americans. Let's quit targeting them and stay focused on people who commit crimes. Let's say, for example, too, when you were talking about um, you know, making, making a, uh, people that break laws with guns, uh, what if we, what we, we have people who violate prescription medicine right now. We have people that, that will steal prescription medicine. They abuse it. They sell it. Uh, should we make it more and more difficult for the legitimate person who wants to go and get their cold medicine, go home and take it? Should we make it more laws for them people? Because that's what we do with gun laws. Uh, should we make it extraordinarily more difficult for a mother or dad to buy some cough medicine for their kids because we have people out here that, that steal prescription medicine? or that uh, buy it under false pretenses and sell it. You see what I'm saying? Well, yeah. I see what you're saying. Let, let me say, if I may, uh, actually, that has happened. You know, you would have to go and buy cough medicine behind the counter now because people are making mess. They actually have enacted more legislation to make it more difficult because people are abusing that and using that to, to, to harmful. But again, is another piece because here, this is what we have. This is what we're facing. We are facing an epidemic, and I respect your point. I understand your point. And we don't want to try to make it more difficult for the law-abiding citizens. But we are facing an epidemic. The CDC, uh, the, the, the public uh, uh, safety and uh, our health organizations have said the violence is of epidemic proportions. It is not a single case. It is not one or two bad eggs. It has gotten into our culture, and we have to respond accordingly. I don't think that we can, I, I think that we have to respond. I don't think that we respond by operating like we're, like we're in 1950. We're not in 1950. We're not in 1970. We're in 2011. And in 2011, you have kids carrying guns. And you know what? You even have good kids carrying guns. You know why the good kids are carrying guns? Because they're carrying guns because the bad kids are carrying guns, and they don't want to be caught without it. That's the reality we live in, and I think we have to respond as a responsible nation. We have to respond to the reality and the context that we are living in right now. Well, now, I would have to agree that, uh, but let's not try to conform our Constitution to today's activities. Let's leave the Constitution as it is. Our society has, has developed into the situation we're at right now. And... Let's keep in mind, too, that the gun, we're talking about these firearms. These are inanimate objects. They have no mind of their own. They have no will of their own. It's that, that will abuse drugs, that will abuse uh, prescription medicine, that will abuse a firearm, that will abuse an automobile when they steal it and they use it in a drive-by or uh, hold up, a bank hold up or something like that. People that we have individual responsibilities. It's not the, it's not the firearm, and it's not the right to keep and bear fire, uh, arms. Uh, but we don't want begin to start conforming our Constitution, modifying our Constitution, because of the um, development taking place over the decades in our society. Why do, why, why, do we have, why do we have Constitution amendments there? I mean, I think, I think, I think the Constitution is a, is, a, is a written document, but it's a living document, and we have, we have amendments to give us the ability to operate in the time that we live in. You know, the whole context of the right to bear arms, remember, that was written in the context of time when we needed Minutemen to pick up their arms and become our militia because we had no standing militia. And I'm not advocating to take away our rights to bear arms, but what I'm simply saying is we, we must change with the times. We must operate with the times uh, that we're changing. And we can't opt to expect the principles that applied in 1950 and 1940 and even 1980 to apply now. We're living in a different time, and we can either stick our, sand, our head in the sand, watch more young people die, watch more people. And you're absolutely right. The gun didn't do it by itself, but the gun is an object that can be used to enact harm and, and, and damage on the community, and we've seen it over and over and over and over again. All right. Our phone number is again, 855-0811-877-285-9348-WFIU.org slash Noon Edition. Uh, here's a question that came in, um, and it's for, for you, Sheriff. It says a very popular notion is that par- private citizens can protect themselves from criminals by carrying or keeping a gun handy. What do the statistics show, and what is your experience? When private citizens use their own firearms in self-defense, what generally happens? 
Well, if they're trained and they know the firearm and so forth, it could be a positive result in general. And I'll go back to an example that was given earlier. In the middle of the night, you get up and you reach for a handgun. Uh, I'm not so sure that that's a, a real good idea. We actually, when we teach people if they want to do that, that they don't use a handgun, but they use a, a large uh, a shotgun. Uh, because then you don't have to aim and so forth, and you're not going to penetrate walls, etc., to any great degree. The big thing is, is that usually when you wake up in the middle of the night and somebody's standing in front of you, it's a member of your own family, and then you have a tragic accident. Uh, people that use guns in their self-defense, uh, if, again, they have them and they know what they're doing, that's fine. What happens with the citizen with no training? He shoots in, a, in an urban area. Where is that bullet going to go when he misses? Police officers at least think about that before they fire. People who are trained think about that before they fire. Uh, those kind of situations are fraught with negative consequences far more often than they are with positive. All right. Let's go to the phones, and we have a phone call from Susan. Susan? Hello. Do we have Susan on the phone? I apologize. I had the mute button in. Sorry. That's okay. Go right ahead. Uh, I've been listening to the discussion with interest, and I, I, I didn't catch the name of the gentleman just speaking in the caller, but I, I, I have to say I, I felt I wanted to say amen to a lot of things that he was saying. And one of the things I wanted to call, too, about is because I thought everyone knew this by now, but I guess it's not as common as you might think. The full uh, statement of the Constitution says, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. What does that mean? It means we're on our own. We got to have our own army to protect us. It's going to be among the citizens, so they got to have guns. Well, now we have an army. Okay, it's a good one, and they draft people, and if and they need to, and otherwise people volunteer, and that seems to work pretty well. And I think this, when, whenever I hear people say the right to keep and bear arms, the Constitution, I just want to say, are you sure you're getting this in context? Secondly. How can anybody say we can't change the Constitution? That's what an amendment is. We do that all the time. It is a living document. I, if, if we made that kind of argument, my gosh, so many things would not. We wouldn't even have the districting of our towns that we have now. That's crazy, really. So many things in our, in our society have changed drastically. And I'm pretty sure that the Founding Fathers weren't envisioning what happens right now when they wrote a lot of that. Okay. Well, I absolutely value... I love the Constitution. I value the writings in it, and I consider it a very important document. Um, I want to stress that the focus was on the people being able to govern themselves. And whenever I hear these arguments about guns, oh, there's so many things. I mean, if you look at statistics, what that other person said, I believe, is true. I used to study sociology and anthropology. It's not really true that people are any safer carrying guns necessarily. That could happen, but it's also true that carrying guns usually means that more people wind up getting shot. And to make the argument, it's tr we do have we, we have I have a friend who's disabled, and uh, he has to get uh, medications, prescription medications, and they're very, very highly controlled because people sell them and abuse it sometimes, not everyone. And I, yeah, I mean, I can't believe that we control these things so carefully, but we don't exert a little more control over how we deal with guns. Lastly, I wanted to point up an article that was in the New York Times op-ed Thursday, January 13th. It's written by a man named Nicholas Kristof. It's called, Why Not Regulate Guns as Seriously as Toys? It was shortly after the shooting of, um, the senator out in Arizona. Arizona. Thank mm -hmm. you. Sorry, mm -hmm. I was losing track of that. And uh, he pointed out why we should be at least regulating guns as seriously as we would toys. And he makes a few sound suggestions. One, limit gun purchases to one per month per person to reduce gun trafficking. And just like the government's crackdown on retailers who sell cigarettes to minors, get tough on gun dealers who sell to traffickers. Two, push for more gun safes and make serial numbers harder to erase. And three, improve our background checks. Canada requires a 28-day waiting period to buy a handgun. What do you know? They also have a very low rate of handgun deaths. 
Um, I just wanted to say those things because I've been listening to this, and I hear these kinds of debates again and again. And when I was taking driver's ed, they said again and again, driving is not a right, it's a privilege. Well, personally, I don't think we should be treating gun ownership as a right. That should be considered a little bit of a privilege, too, and we should be testing carefully. Thank you. All right. Thanks a lot for the call. Um, Senator Toms, I wanted you to react to that. And first of all, I want you to react to some of the ideas that she put out there, um, you know, about um, a, a waiting period and some of those other things. Would they make things more more safe? Um, making a good person wait a little bit longer to get your gun, I don't see how it's going to affect uh, uh, making a safer society. First off, I want to say that I can't think of any industry that is more regulated than the firearm industry. The manufacturers, the firearms, the dealers, the, uh, the importers, the uh, distributors, all highly regulated. The purchases of a firearm, extraordinarily regulated. You go through state and federal agencies before you take possession of a firearm. The ammunition manufacturers, the powder makers, the people that make primers, the casings, all of that is highly regulated. And you can read in our state statutes alone of all the regulations. There's pages and pages. I think in Indiana we have probably about 11 pages that pertain to firearms and the regulations on that. Nothing else in our, in our um, criminal code contains that much regulations. Um, we, uh, it's an extraordinarily heavily regulated industry. And uh, the, uh, the idea that uh, uh, people with firearms are going to commit more crimes, I just want to point out something here. Uh, I think it was in 2002 here in Evansville, Indiana. There was a lady that was working at a convenience store in her 60s. A fellow came in from Tell City, Indiana. This guy was like uh, 6'1", 250 pounds. He was going to rob the place. And he um, also was going to take the money out of the cash register. He got in a, a, a tussle with this lady, pushed her down, and he was using the heel of his boot to crush every bone in her face. Now, she had a handgun license, and she had a handgun. In all of that melee, as this guy was taking his boot of his heel, uh, of his boot, to crush every bone in her face, she was able to get a shot off, and she, and she shot this fellow. When the police got there, there was a patron outside, heard the commotion, called the police. When they got there, they found him in the alley behind the convenience store, dead, uh-huh. with the uh, items he stole. We're going we're to have to end this story. But anyway, she, now I, I say, would we, would we want more regulations for her not to have that ability to, would we want her to wait 21 days? That could have cost her her life. Yep. All right. We are out of time. Uh, we're, we could go on for a long time on this topic, and maybe we'll have another show soon. But I want to thank, uh, that was Senator um, Jim Toms. Uh, from District 49, Brent Weil has been here with us, uh, who's a gun rights activist. We've also had Reverend um, Reverend Charles Ellis from Indianapolis and Monroe County Sheriff Jim Kennedy. I want to thank you all for being here. Um, for Rachel Lyon, our producer, for engineer Mike Pashkash and Mary Catherine Carmichael, I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net.